Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Planning Ahead for 2023. It is currently February, which means that in the UK, it is LGBTQ plus history month. Recently, I was lucky enough to speak to Rodney Wilson, one of the global founders of this event. Rodney was, and still is, a history teacher in his native Missouri, where he made headlines by becoming the first openly out gay teacher in the state. Rodney was teaching a history class to his students, and when discussing the Holocaust, he alluded to the fact that had he been around at the time, he would have been prosecuted as a gay man. His admissions spread like wildfire, and Rodney faced media harassment, threats, and came close to losing his job. However, he was able to overcome all of this, and continues to inspire generation after generation of students, whilst also continuing his work with the LGBTQ plus history months across the world. What started as an idea inspired by similar history months for other communities is now a celebration that is observed in every corner of the world. I'm thrilled to share our full conversation with you that can also be found in our upcoming special edition print magazine for LGBTQ plus history month. Enjoy. So you're obviously a teacher, been a teacher for for many, many years, Um, but I think it's something that really speaks to me in terms of the passion for history and teaching and helping people um, that I just kind of wondered whether you could sort of expand on where that passion really comes from. I love to learn. And if a person is always absorbing information, taking in new ideas and not letting them flow out, um, it's not that beneficial to the person or to others. So I'm a teacher now since 1990 because I love to learn and I love to teach what I've learned. I love to pass on information, pass on knowledge uh, in the hope that it will inspire others. uh, It will lift others up. uh, It will help others be wiser, kinder, better citizens. Uh, It will help people make uh, better choices in their own lives. So even as a kid, when we would play school, I would be the teacher. That would be my role. Um, So it just comes very naturally to me. Mm -hmm. And I must say that, you know, in the 1970s, when I was growing up, when I was a kid, Uh, We had here in the United States, we had at least two major events that made me think I could not be a teacher. And that was Anita Bryant, 1977. I was 12 years old. It was in Florida, but I lived in Missouri, but still it was a national story. And I can remember hearing bits and pieces of the story in conversations about the news. And understanding that people like myself provoke fear and anxiety among other people. And that would preclude me potentially from teaching. And then the following year, 1978, the Briggs Initiative in California was a vote where the people of California decided if they wanted openly honest, then lesbian and gay, LGBTQ plus people teaching. And that also was in the atmosphere at the time. And truly, I believed I could not be a teacher in 1977 and 1978. And even when I was beginning to decide what it was I wanted to do with my life, when I finished secondary school in the U.S., we have K through 12, 13 years 
of kindergarten, primary, and secondary school. When I finished in 1983 at age 18, I did not go to college. I went into the workforce. I started working at a Walmart store, which is a, a retail store in the United States, founded in 1964 in Arkansas by Sam Walton, became you know the, the largest employer in the United States right now, other than the federal government. That's where I went to work. Walmart was going to be my career because I didn't think I could be a teacher. But after two and a half years working there, I recognized that retail was not for me. I'm not good at selling things. I can sell ideas and information and stories. I can sell you know, people from history and events from history. But to sell things was difficult for me. And so I, I started back at college when I was 21. Whereas most go from age 18, secondary, right into college. And I've stuck with it now. This is my 33rd school year. I'm in my office right now. I'm teaching this semester American History One, which from the beginnings through the end of the Civil War and Reconstruction uh, and a comparative religion course. Really, it's like an intro world religions course. Uh, next semester, I'll teach American History too. So we'll pick up at the end of Reconstruction, so around 1880, and take it as far as we can into the 20th and even now the 21st century. And I'm still enjoying it. I still look forward to my work. I still love the interaction with students. And I expect I'll continue to teach full time another two, three, four, five years. And then I'll teach part time. As long as you know my faculties and, and stamina and health persist, I'll continue to teach part-time. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's such a, a passion there that is is just so inspiring. My my mum is a teacher as well. And you know, I've I've always kind of grown up throughout my whole life having exactly the same sort of perspective from her about you know that passion and that that drive that just kind of is, is so inspirational for for the, the kids that you teach, no doubt. Um, I wanted to kind of revisit now um, that that moment in 1994 when kind of you decided to sort of discuss, um, you know, the Holocaust. It's already a very, you know, deep emotional um, aspect of history to be teaching to these kids. And, and you chose to contextualize your sexuality, a, a vital part of, of your personal identity with them. Was that something that you did as a sort of spur of the moment decision? Was that something that you kind of felt yourself building up to? Um, and kind of how how was that process of deciding, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna discuss this with them? It was a slow buildup. Uh, I really didn't start coming out until 1989 when I was 24 years old. So I was a little delayed in getting into college. I was a little delayed in, in the coming out process. Um I I knew that I'm gay since I was eight years old. So I always knew, I always had, I was fully conscious and aware of the reality of my person, but I kept it a secret, obviously, because I was growing up in, in rural Missouri, a little town of 2,500 people, conservative and religious. And in the 1970s, you know, homosexuality was something you did not discuss in polite company. So I kept it all in. Um, but once I did start coming out, I quickly came out to all of my friends. 
And then I started coming out to family. I told my mother in 1991 when I was 26. And then I had a community in St. Louis area where I had moved after graduating from undergrad and then started teaching at a suburban high school. So the only group to which I was still carrying secrets or for which I was still carrying secrets would be colleagues and students. And that's because of everything that had happened in the 1970s, continued to happen in the 1980s, because you did not have openly LGBTQ teachers in Missouri in the 19, early 1990s. But I came to recognize that where we work and what we do for a living and for a life, uh, those matter as much as our friendship and family groups. And if I wanted to be uh, integrated in all aspects of my life, when I'm with family, when I'm with friends, when I'm with community, when I'm with colleagues, then I had to take that next step, which is a hard step to take because in the case of a job, your ability to pay rent or mortgage or electricity and buy food and make the car payment, those things matter. Uh, but it came to seem to me that it was um, inevitable and it was unstoppable. So regarding that March 1994 event, I had been in Washington, D.C. the previous week at a National Education Association conference on lesbian and gay youth. While there, I had gone to the United States Holocaust Museum, which was about a year old at the time. I had purchased a poster of many different patches that many different ones would have used in concentration or death camps. And of course, while the Holocaust was primarily and specifically and uniquely a war against European Jews, there were others also deemed unacceptable. You know all this, of course. And so I had this poster up. I talked to my students. We've been studying World War II and the Holocaust. It's, it's in the spring of the year, March. So we had made our way into the middle part of the 20th century. And I point out the various patches on the poster. And then I say, you know, the pink triangle would potentially have been for me. If I had lived then in that locale, under those circumstances, I might have been wearing a pink triangle because I'm gay. If I had been Jewish, I would have said, you know, I'm Jewish. This, this yellow star of David might have been on my coat. If, if I were Jehovah's Witness, I would have done the same thing and pointed to the purple triangle. Um, so to me, it was a way of identifying with that lesson and a way for students to find it more imminent or immediate or real to, to the circumstances around them. Because maybe not for you, because you have a great interest in these things, but for lots of young people, it is very, very hard to imagine 10 years ago, much less 50. So to try to help young people understand what was happening 50 years ago, I felt it was, it was important, imperative, and uh, absolutely uh, pedagogically sound to say what I said. Um, I also knew one, one other element going into this was in January 94, I had written the proposal 
about October as Lesbian and Gay History Month. And that was really gaining steam very quickly, even in our pre-internet age. I didn't have an email address at the time, for example. Uh, but it was still moving quickly, this idea. And I was aware that this was March and by October, there would be potential press coverage. And how could I be a secretive, closeted gay teacher on one hand, and on the other hand, I'm trying to organize this national event that's going to generate uh, media interest and conversation. I also believe that it's important that the teacher as the authority figure, quote unquote, in the classroom, as the leader, quote unquote, of the classroom, that, that the teacher uh, not be forced into a position of weakness. And if an LGBTQ teacher comes to be known as an LGBTQ teacher by students through rumor, innuendo, gossip, but they've never revealed it themselves, that, that strips the teacher of some power. That, that repositions the power dynamic in the classroom in a way that's not good, I think. So all of that was going into that very long process that brought me to that day in March of 94. Mm. And, and what do you think it is about that attitude that we we see with your experience in schools and it's it's something that now conversely there's a lot of of discourse at the moment about um drag queens and drag artists and their you know perpetuated influence on children um where do you think this kind of stigma and irrational fear of something that is you know a, a common fact especially within you know, countries like the UK and the US to be a natural part of many people. Why do you think that that fear when it comes to children and adolescents still exists? It's a great question. Of course, I think in part it's evolutionary that we fear the other. It's not good. It's not moral. It's not wise, but it is somewhat natural. And of course, evolution is about transcending the natural. And phobias are something we have to overcome and transcend and move beyond. Absolutely. If, if we're going to see progress, we have to outgrow these. So. In that one small degree, then, I can understand where people have anxiety about the different ones. But immediately, also, we all have an obligation to overcome irrational anxiety and phobia, fear of others. Uh, if we're going to be upstanding human beings and good people, who create what Martin Luther King called a beloved community in which everyone is welcome. And there's a seat at the table for every individual and all have a right to participate in the marketplace of ideas and the political process and social culture. Uh, then we have to recognize, all right, I'm feeling a little anxiety here because of you know, a million years of human evolution and wiring of my brain, but I'm going to transcend that. I'm going to walk on the side of the beloved community, not on the side of this evolutionary response in my psyche. 
You asked a question uh, in here about non-binary and transgender now, and this is where the war is now. The war in the United States, at least, is largely against non-binary transgender individuals. They are being exploited by right-wing politicians in the United States to conjure up fear and anxiety so that they get more votes, so that the right wing gets more votes. Um, the right wing still is uncomfortable with the L and the G and the B, but they know that largely culture has now evolved and moved beyond them. So they've moved over now to transgender and non-binary. That's their boogeyman now. And it's devastating. Uh, it's devastating not just for non-binary transgender individuals. It must be devastating also for lesbian, gay, and bisexual individuals and cisgender individuals. Because if there's anything we've learned, we need to be one community, a united front, in a sense that we all stand outside the norm in regard to sexual orientation, gender expression, and gender identity. So it's really important that all of us in our community and as many outsiders, allies as possible can stand up, not just for lesbian, gay, bisexual, but for everybody that's under that queer umbrella. Mm, absolutely. I think there's a lot that uh, many people, um, specifically those that are non-binary or transgender can relate to kind of the way in which your story was very much weaponized it gave you a public profile there was a lot of things that subsequently because of that you had to deal with in terms of drawing a comparison between those two things how did you deal with that attention how did you deal with that backlash because i'm i'm sure that there will have been you know part of your inner monologue that was sort of preparing or trying to prepare yourself for part of that but surely you know, a lot of that just has to be a sort of reactionary coping mechanism response. I think in one sense, I was able to deal with it because I really believed that my position was the right one. My position was the future's position. It wasn't yet the majority position in 1994, certainly not in my environment but I knew it would be the position of the future. I knew I was on the right side on, on this question. I also had confidence that I'm largely, I hope, a person of integrity and honesty. And if I'm going to be honest, if I'm going to have integrity, I have to say what is the truth and then whatever the consequences are, I have to deal with those. So I just felt really confident that um, what I had done was proper and that what I had done was helpful to myself and to every student and every member, uh, paid staff, teachers in the, the school district I worked in. Um, it was good for everyone. Truth is always, 99.9% yeah, .9 truth is always good and helpful. And I felt that I was doing something that would better my community, better my school district, and better my students. And that's what we're supposed to do as teachers. We're supposed to help our students be better 
better readers, better writers, better thinkers, better mathematicians, better human beings, uh, better citizens, better friends. And, and I felt that there was nothing I was doing that was against that. So having confidence that what I had done was, was as Lincoln would put it, altogether fitting and proper, um, I think gave me a lot of confidence. Mm. I think, you know, coming back to that that lesson where you um, disclosed your your sexuality with those students and kind of contextualizing the the queer or other sort of underrepresented experiences within history. Why why do you think that's so important? But then on the same note, something that is still you know needed to be working on. That there are a lot of gaps in. The curriculum is very homogenous in terms of the narrative of history that it plays. It ignores a lot of parts. Why do you think that despite, you know, this kind of um, campaign that you had in that moment in 1994, but then ever since with, with History Month as well, why do you think it's still a subject where people are hesitant to act on it? I think the hesitancy comes from the potential for backlash. We who teach are very busy. We have a lot to do. We have a lot on our plate. We have a lot of responsibility. Taking on one more potential responsibility or dealing with one more unhappy administrator or an unhappy parent, sometimes in life you just say, I'm just not going to go there now. And I think that's particularly true right now in the United States. I know you've been following, for example, the legislation in Florida parental rights and education, don't say gay bill, um, it has had an enormous chilling effect in Florida and in the rest of the country. Other state legislatures also have passed these kinds of um, uh, bills. So I think right now people are sort of on edge. There's anxiety about what is allowed, what is not allowed. And when you have that anxiety, you're, you're likely to opt for just not pushing the button, you know, not crossing the Rubicon. Um, so I think that's part of the reason. Another reason is in the United States, at least, uh, textbook companies must sell books. And they cater in large degree to large states, including particularly Texas. And if a publisher cannot get an American history book sold in Texas, they're going to be in trouble. So they excise things that might be uncomfortable for Texans, conservative Texans, but that affects all of us because that textbook is, is a national textbook company. So I think that's part of it. When I was teaching in 1994, my American history textbook had 800 pages it did not have one single reference, not one, to any identified LGBTQ person or any LGBTQ event. There at the end, when we talked about the post-World War II social movements, particularly in the 1960s, women, Native Americans, African Americans, uh, Latinx, etc., Asian, nothing about LGBTQ people, which was one of the reasons I opted to create a history month in order to take a light intentionally with purpose and shine it on that aspect of history that had been neglected. And we made great progress, I think, since 1994, but we've had a tremendous backlash 
and um, we've taken steps backward now since the election of 2016, particularly, because that election sort of liberated or gave permission to the critics, um, to those who are still uh, in a situation in which they're not only not fighting their phobias, but they are publicizing those phobias and they're doing it for egregiously political purposes. So we've taken a few steps back. That's just a fact. And I think we're trying now to figure out how to move forward again, how to deal with the present situation, get through it uh, the best way possible, and then get back on track to making progress down the road. Mm. And and do you think that it's, that does it concern you that potentially, you know, the, the solution to, to many people, we have um, an organization here in the UK called the LGB Alliance, and they they claim to be part of our community. But like you were saying earlier, I think it's either the community is all together or there isn't one at all. Um, but one of the things that they campaign for is the presence of queer stories in the school curriculums, in social discourse, but at a very selected and selective um, process for you know excluding a lot of the the trans non-binary um stories and just generally stories that don't fit their narrative and obviously when there's division even within our own community what do you think the the next steps are you're talking about you know attempting to move forward and obviously there are many americans that are, are trying to move move forward from um, the last presidency and and the effects that that's had and the effects it could still have. So, what are those those steps that you think are important to take next? We have to convince everyone in the community, in our community first, that just as our particular group, be it gay men, lesbians, was excluded, vilified, left out demonized, that's what's happening now to other people in our community. I mean, for example, if you're talking about in the United States, the American Civil War, you have to, I think, to tell the full story and to make it interesting, you have to touch on those women who disguised themselves as men and fought in the Civil War. They didn't have words like non-binary and transgender. They, they didn't have access to medical science and understanding. But some of these were transgender and non-binary individuals. We can't identify with specificity which ones, but clearly, uh, when you talk about the American Revolution, uh, Kazimierz Pulaski was a Polish immigrant to the United States, born in Warsaw. He became the father of the American cavalry. Just... Google him, highly likely intersex individual. In the American Revolution, uh, Baron von Steuben, uh, Prussian, came over. George Washington loved him. He, he whipped the colonial forces uh, into shape. Highly likely today would be an openly gay man. Um, so it's an interesting story lesbian and gay history, but it's a really, really interesting story when it's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, non-binary. That makes it really interesting. 
because then you've gone three or four layers further into the onion of, of human history. So convincing everyone that, that all of this is so fascinating and interesting, and we only get one life, and it zooms by with great speed, and surely we can agree that everyone has a right to be happy or to pursue happiness, as the American Declaration of Independence puts it. And how can you pursue happiness if not only are you being opposed by outsiders, but within your own community? So I must say, I, I just find, I can understand how some people, especially older people, maybe don't quite understand yet all the ins and outs, non-binary, transgender, fine. Learn, grow, evolve yourself. And until you fully figure it out, have grace and gentleness with everyone because we're all here for only a very short time. And I think surely we can at least agree that love and, and grace are good things. And inclusion is always better than exclusion. And trying to understand is better than remaining in your ignorance. So somehow we have to uh, continue to evolve that conversation. Yeah. Mm. No, that, that, that there was some, some brilliant words there. I really appreciate that. Um, I think the thing that really stands out to me, the more that I learn about, you know, the, the queer experiences, the queer narratives within uh, British history, American history, world history in general, I think for me, it, it, it brings comfort to, to many members of our community because it, it normalizes it, it usualizes, um, which was a, a term that I believe um, Sue Sanders started using. Yes, yeah, I was um, going to, I was wondering where you got that. Absolutely. Yes, but but I really appreciate the thought behind it because I think that that is something that you know. The more that I do research, the more comfort and validation that you get from it because I think there was such a a narrative, um, even even sort of in my generation, of kind of being queer is this new alien thing. Therefore, it's not normal. It's not usual. Um, but then being able to trace it back through history is therefore so validating because you know that it it's something that is so you know fundamental fundamentally like part of our our history um so what kind of impact have have you seen have you did you set out to achieve from having this month that is particularly dedicated to raising those kinds of stories well one of your questions you mentioned um how i comment on uh, dr carter woodson hmm First African-American to earn a PhD at Harvard University, only African-American who was the child of both parents who were enslaved. So the, parent, the child of two enslaved parents to finish um, at Harvard University. He believed the same thing I believed in 1994. He was believing it though in 1924, 70 years earlier, that as he called it, the great theater of events, African-Americans were part of the great theater of events. They had a history, a story. That history and story could be inspiring and uplifting, motivating, energizing. That story could usualize, normalize being black in America, which was a very hard thing to be. 
And that's why he founded Negro History Week in 1926, putting it in February because Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass were born in February. It was to be a recurring week in February in perpetuity. It evolved into Black History Month in, in the 1970s. And his goal was my goal. And yes, he was a direct, um, he's the father of all history and uh, commemorative months and heritage months. He is the father of all of them all over the world. And as I was writing the proposal in 1994, yes, I had an, an eight by 10 framed picture of Carter Woodson that I took out of the back of Jet Magazine, which is a black publication in the USA. And I had I bought a frame probably for a dollar at Walmart. And I had that there sitting on my desk. So absolutely, he was a, a direct inspiration. And I believe the same thing about the history of LGBTQ people. It usualizes, uh, it inspires, it uplifts, it energizes, it provides a way forward, it gives, it, it provides wisdom for this movement of ours so that we can perhaps avoid some of the pitfalls of the past, learn from some of those mistakes, uh, move the narrative forward. Uh, I think also we have a sacred or moral obligation to remember the past to remember those who came before us, to remember the events that preceded the days of our own. Um, I think in terms of LGBTQ history, what it did for me when I first began to learn this history, when I was in graduate school, I didn't learn any of this K through 12, 1970 to 1983. I didn't learn any of this from 86 to 90 when I was in undergrad. It was in graduate school, working on a master's degree in history, 1992 to 1995, that's when I really started learning this history. And yes, it made me feel normal. It made me understand that people with similar views to my own and experiences and orientations are part of the narrative. We're not left out. We're there. And I always say to my students, because of what you said, it reminded me, when, when I talk about Casimir Pulaski, for example, um, I always say to my students, you know, some people think that this whole transgender idea just developed three months ago or three years ago, that, that intersex is a new thing or non-binary. No, this stuff goes way back. It's always, always been there, these identities. And I think that helps bring first tolerance and then understanding and with it acceptance uh, to point out. I mean, we do that in history with all kinds of things. We talked about the uh, election of 1800 the other day and man, was it nasty. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, they were at each other's throats. Nasty, nasty, nasty. And then I'll say, you see, we've always had these arguments in politics. Yes, things are worse now than they have been probably since the Civil War, but We've always had arguments. We've always had nasty uh, political campaigns. I think that's part of the purpose of history, actually, is to help. You know, when we're born, we are a solo, you know, entity, and we think everything revolves around us. And then as we begin to grow, we encounter a larger world. And hopefully, we don't get uh, delayed development and we get stuck in a world that this is what happened to Donald Trump, frankly you know, malignant narcissist because he never grew beyond his own little bubble. So 
history is about being able not only to grow beyond your bubble in the present, but then also to extend that into the past. And with that information and the present, make projections about the future. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's all vital. It's all essential for a good education and for a good upbringing just as a regular human being. Yeah, fantastic. The next question I wanted to ask you was about the way in which History Month has evolved. So obviously now you are part of a panel of international organizers for History Month events um, across the world. Obviously, one of the common things with coming out and understanding yourself and your personal identity is it's often classed as a very independent individual experience, which I think is very valid. But there is also a lot of value in kind of sharing those experiences communally among safe spaces and things like that. So I was just intrigued to know kind of some of the things that you've learned from opening up um, this event to having contributions from all over the world. You know, people like Sue Sanders that we mentioned earlier, who, what kind of things have you learned from expanding um, this event to become a sort of more international um, celebration? Yeah, I think the um, International Committee is the most interesting thing I've been involved in probably since the 90s when History Month USA started. Um, that conversation I had with that Italian team a year ago when they were planning the first History Month Italy, which happened in April 2022, um, you know, out of that grew the idea that we need an international committee because by that point you had History Month uh, having been adopted in the United Kingdom in 2005. Um, autonomous to semi-autonomous uh, history months in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, uh, Hungary by that point, uh, Berlin, um, the uh, Nordic Rainbow History Month. And then here come, comes this Italian group of activists and academics who want to do the same thing in Italy. And then following that, uh, a group in Cuba organized the first History Month in Latin America in May of 2022. Um, just prior to this Zoom call with you, I was on a Zoom call with a member of the International Committee who is a co-founder of Queer Culture Ireland. And they are now contemplating, hoping, potentially planning for uh, the first History Month Ireland in November of 2023. So it's really exciting because, you know, we are a global community. LGBTQ plus people are found in all cultures and all times by different names, different nomenclature, of course, because words evolve and understanding evolves, uh, understanding evolves, but we're, we're there. We're international people, really. Uh, which actually can give us a very unique role in the globalization process and in transcending borders and these various uh, nationalisms, because we, we do transcend. Uh, it's sort of like, I guess one could say a person is Christian or Muslim or 
whatever the religion. And that sort of transcends sometimes geography. But I think our community transcends geography even more. In fact, I'm sure of it because we are in every community, culture, and nation. And Muslims are not, Christians are not, Jews are not. Uh, but we are. So we have a unique, I think, potential role to play in the betterment and, and evolutionary process of, of the human species. Uh, I've learned a lot to specifically answer your question. I did not know why Italy picked April. The protest at, at San Remo in 1972. I didn't know about those until I learned, why did you pick April? Well, here's why, because it's the 50th anniversary of these, you know, first public protest against anti-LGBTQ plus um, policies. Uh, I learned a lot from Cuba when they had their history month in May. Uh, people I hadn't heard of, events I hadn't heard of, things I hadn't known. Um, I've learned a lot from Sue Saunders, who's a, a remarkable, if you've, if you've not spoken with her, you should. You really should uh, get a Zoom call. She'll have one with you because um, she loves working and talking with young people like you. She loves, uh, you know, sharing her story, which is an amazing one, dating back, you know, nearly 50 years of activism, uh, co-founding History Month UK in 2005. Uh, she's amazing. So do have a conversation with her. And if you don't have her contact, I can happily send an email to both of you and say, you need to talk. She'd be thrilled to talk with you. So yes, I've learned a lot. We are learning a lot from each other on this committee. We now have 30 members from about 19 locations around the world. We meet quarterly, uh, January, April, July, and October. In that meeting, we share you know, what we're planning for the upcoming History Month in our locality or what just happened in the History Month that just passed. Uh, putting together a website now that will include a resource page, you know, how to start a History Month. You know, 10 things you need to do. Uh, so we're there to support not only existing History Months, but we're there to help nurture new ones because we do believe we're, we're academics and educators and activists um, archivist, and we really do believe that this history is incredibly important, and it it needs to be preserved and understood and and uh, publicized all over the world, and that will help uh, unite our community around the world, um, and. And in doing so, I think it will help empower all LGBTQ people everywhere. And particularly, of course, we're all teachers and academics and educators. Most of us on this committee are, you know, 35 plus. You know, I'm 50 plus, Sue is 70 plus. And we, we want the world to be better for younger people than it was for us. I spent 25 years figuring myself out, accepting myself being comfortable in my own skin. I really don't want young people to have to spend 25 years. I think often they don't today because you hear about people coming out at age 13 to their parents, unheard of in my generation. I'm thrilled by it uh, because life is short. Why spend a quarter of a century just trying to figure yourself out and come out to yourself and other people? So yes, I think our international committee is a really important endeavor. 
I think it's a very important evolution of the concept of a history month. Um, and it's amazing and empowering. And we have a wonderful group of people who are kind and thoughtful and smart and uh, helpful and empathetic. And we all have a, kind of a, a similar personality about wanting to learn and then teach what we've learned. Uh, so it's an incredible group, definitely. And if you want to speak to anyone on that group, just let me know. But particularly, you should speak to Sue, especially since you're you're doing this piece for February's UK. So yeah, absolutely. Um, no, definitely. It's um, something that I've got in the pipeline. I'm planning on speaking to her later this month. So okay, great. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's really, really, really exciting to just kind of, for me, I think a lot of the, the research, the the intrigue behind exploring LGBTQ plus history has kind of been off my own bat. Like I remember you know, being at school and it was acknowledged that in February, um, that is when the UK marks LGBTQ plus history month, but it was very much something that was sort of brushed over. And I think that was, you know, particular to my environment. I was in a selective all boys school, very much the kind of environment where, it's all about not only the the teaching but promoting that i that heterosexual sort of to toxic masculinity narrative um and it was very much kind of something i remember um a teacher saying that there was no real point doing more than you know one whole school assembly on it because everyone um pretty much at the school was straight so what's the point in in recognizing it I think not only is that fundamentally wrong, the, the amount of people that, you know, myself included, would sort of suppress ourselves because of the nature of that environment. But actually, there's so much value to history in general, particularly these sort of queer narratives that we've been discussing for people that want to be allies or just people that are, you know, intrigued about, about learning. And I think that's one of the things that's always underestimated, but I'd be interested from, from your experience what kind of benefits have you seen from people who don't even, you know, they're not part of the community. They don't resonate with these particular experiences, but why is it still important that they recognize these things have happened, learn about them um, and sort of try to understand them and our community a bit more? I think it's an obligation we have as human beings to try to understand as many other human beings and their circumstances and unique upbringing and perspective as possible. When I took in undergrad a Black history course, American history from the perspective of Black Americans, what's happening in that community? It was a revelation of information I did not know. In graduate school, when I took a women's history course, again, it was a look at all of American history, but from the perspective of what are women doing? How is this affecting women? This was also you know, a, a revelation of information for me. I'm neither a woman nor black. What does that matter? To get back to the point that the person at your school talked about, what does that matter? When we're studying someone who lived in the 18th century, well, I don't live in the 18th century. So does that mean we don't study people in the 18th century? Because we don't live there. Um, so I hope that person uh, changed their mind a bit because 
Um, in fact, one of the little uh, logos or um, taglines in 1994 for our group, we, we formed a committee in 1994. After I sent that a proposal out, various ones would start writing back. And from that, I selected you know, several and said, hey, you want to be on an organizing committee for this national effort? And one of our taglines of that committee was all the history for all the people. That's kind of simple, but it made the point. And I, I think it's really important that we recognize that that all the history for all the people is is important. European history, Asian history, African history, you know, Latin American history, American history. It, it, it's all important. The history of, of people of color, the history of Christians, Jews, atheists, you know, everything. Uh, why exclude any perspective or group, or in the case of our conversation immediately, any sexual orientation or gender identity expression? Um, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. But again, it's sort of evolutionary that we concentrate on our own little group. First of all, our family, and then our larger family, our neighborhood, our community, and outsiders are perceived as a potential threat because they're not known or understood. Therein kicks in the obligation to get to know, and to get to understand this new person or this unusual person in the group. I've always, all my life, I have found the unusual ones the most interesting. I've always gravitated to those who you know, are from a different culture or have different ideas. I was at one point a conservative Christian, and I loved and would seek out agnostics and atheists. Now I myself am a hopeful agnostic, hopeful agnostic. Um, so I don't understand that narrowing of the vision our narrowing of the desire to understand. Mm. Information is always good. Yeah, and I think it, it kind of draws me back to um, earlier in our conversation where you were talking about the influence of, of Carter Woodson and the work that he did in obviously establishing those roots for Black History Month that we we now sort of know and see today. Was that something where you realised that in that moment in time there wasn't really a, a sort of direct inspiration or sort of it was it was a story that you could find sort of solace and comfort and relatability in or was it very much kind of like this is the kind of work I want to do and relating it to your own experience I think all of that I really do everything you described there all of that was part of it uh I knew about Black History Month of course in February uh, at least for a few years prior to starting to teach. And then beginning in 1990, fall of 1991, I would participate in Black History Month and then Women's History Month in March. You know, I'd put up a bulletin board in my classroom or I'd put up a display out in the hall, something. So I was already involved in those two history months. I already knew who uh, Dr. Woodson was. And it seemed to me that the predicament he found himself in in the 1920s was the predicament I found myself in in the 1990s. So it seemed to be a match and a parallel. And since we already had the Black History Month and Women's History Month models that were widely known in early 1990s, 
why not just adopt a model that's already known and understood that already functions well, that has demonstrated its ability to work, and then just add the twist, it's lesbian and gay in the nomenclature of that day, LGBTQ plus History Month. Uh, also by that point, there was already a Hispanic Heritage Month, Asian Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Um, but yeah, he was a direct inspiration. I don't know what Dr. Woodson would think if we could, if we could wake him up and, and have a conversation about his legacy and all these other groups that have adopted his idea, including queer people. I'm not sure what his response would be initially, but knowing him, if, if he didn't understand initially, he would seek out understanding. Mm. And, and what do you think, um, how, how important was it to you rather um, to have sort of someone like that who you could kind of take inspiration from, take motivation from? Um, we're lucky that kind of now sort of in the last sort of 10, 15 years or so, there is far more representation for queer people than there was. But especially for, you know, certain um, parts of the community that it's still lacking. So what kind of value, although it perhaps wasn't a direct um, sort of relatability and experience, but it was enough to take inspiration and, and motivation from, how important do you think that kind of sort of role model influence is for both yourself and for, for young queer people today? I think it's crucial. I think we spend our early lives looking for how it is we're supposed to live. And we look at the adult figures to try to model our behavior, model our ideas. Sometimes that's not good. Uh, largely, it's certainly natural. Um, I think for LGBTQ people getting to know and understand that there are people who have very similar experiences now and who had similar experiences then is important. It used to be on American television that people of color were not represented largely. Uh, you had a few exceptions, but largely not. And I heard I think it was Henry Louis Gates who teaches African-American history at Harvard. I think he's the person I heard this from, that when they would learn that there would be a colored person, quote unquote, on television, they would spread the word in their community. You know, colored on Channel 5 tonight at 7. That's how he put it, Dr. Uh, Henry Louis Gates. I remember in the early 1990s, we LGBTQ people would do the same thing. We would hear that there's going to be a gay character on a television show, or like when Ellen came out in 1996 or 97, you know, this was a big event. Well, today we don't have such big events because it's much more common uh, to be represented. And I know I was starving for role models and for representation of people like myself in the larger world that weren't being debated over as they were by Anita Bryant and, and so on. And I think it's really helpful for young people today. Yeah. I, I think it, it gives them the a, a more a more fast route toward development, psychosocial development and understanding of who they are. Hmm. 
And it takes away a lot of the fear and anxiety, I hope to goodness, for young people today to see queer people on television, in music, in the media, in on Broadway, uh, on the West End. I think that's London, right? The yeah. West End. You know, in the hospitals as nurses and as teachers. That is crucial. Mm. You need representation in your schools. Boy, I can't imagine what that would be like to have had a gay or lesbian teacher when I was going to school. I can't imagine what would that be like. Um, I've never had a black teacher. Isn't that shocking and awful? Yeah, it 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 reminds me of um, kind of I remember doing a lot of research on Section Twenty Eight, uh, which obviously was a, a profound piece of legislation in the UK for queer people, and you know it was it was abolished by the time that I started school. But actually, on doing this kind of research behind it, the effects it had, you really saw how much of an impact it was still having. I mean, there was a um, statistic that I, I read recently where it's estimated that about 30 to 40 percent of queer teachers um, at UK schools are not out to the rest of the faculty, to students, whatever. And, you know, I, I wasn't surprised, sadly, because there were a lot of experiences that I witnessed where, you know, the, it was like we were saying earlier, where a lot of the the talk of of sexuality was all to do with speculation or rumor. Um, and, and like you say, it completely undermines the authority structure within schools and, you know, representation absolutely matters. Um, I, I think you're so right there, but I guess then my next, my next question would be kind of what, what do we have to do to kind of reach that point where, you know, there are more people, um, from, a wider range of diverse backgrounds wanting to go into teaching. How do we break that stigma of a lot of them feeling that it's still not a, a safe, comfortable environment for them to be in? Hey, I'll address that, but I want to sidetrack for just one moment on this comment I made, how I've not had a black teacher from K through 12, undergraduate, graduate. I have two graduate degrees, two master's degrees, never had a black teacher. This is the experience of most white people in the United States. And now I'm just going to give you a little uh, political thesis I have. Um, this is one of the reasons Barack Obama's election in 2008, which was a magnificent event in my mind, was created such a backlash. You have tens of millions. We have 330 million people in this country. Um, 200 million white, whatever. There were tens of millions of white people in this country who have never had a black teacher, a black authority figure, a black boss, a black leader. And suddenly, the top job was being held by a man whose father was from Kenya and whose mother was from Kansas. 
but a man who identifies as a black man, African-American man. And I think that's part of what happened that sent some white people off the rails after his inauguration, demanding his papers, you know, his birth certificate, which is what brought Donald Trump into power. He was the biggest birther of them all. Do they not know how offensive it is for white people to be able to ask black people for their papers? I mean, this has a long history in days of enslavement and segregation. And I think in part, uh, the backlash that brought Donald Trump to power was many white people who wanted to feel comfortable again. And so they elected truly, forgive me for being so blunt, they elected the dumbest white man they could find because they had the smartest man one of the smartest men we've ever had as president, right up there with, with Jimmy Carter and Thomas Jefferson, Barack Obama. And they couldn't, they couldn't handle it because they had no experience of such. And so they turned to what's familiar to them, a white man. Why they picked the dumbest white man in America, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, okay. So the question then was <laughs> specifically, about why it's important that in education we have full representation um, and how can we achieve that. I think people of color, women, uh, LGBTQ people um, in, in the, the US, the UK, wherever, need to continue to advocate for ourselves. We need to continue to be out and open about who we are. We need to continue to put on our Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or whatever social media platform it is, whatever picture we want to put up, instead of hiding the picture with our significant other or boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse or whatever. Um, because familiarity does help bring about not just tolerance, but acceptance. Uh, we have to talk about the experiences in the curriculum, we're talking about poetry and we're reading a lesbian poet, a gay poet, a non-binary poet, we have to say that. That's part of their story. When we're talking about history, we have to say it. So we just have to keep incrementally, step-by-step, step, moving the conversation forward until we come to a point at which all voices and all people are at the table, be it a boardroom, or a school room, um, or a hospital room, so that everyone's there and it's usualized, as Sue puts it, and no one freaks out, no one gets fear and phobia about it. Um, it it's just the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It's the loving thing to do. It's the empathetic thing to do. It's the wise thing to do. And I think all of us who know that already just need to keep moving the conversation along step by step. Mm. I, I, th I think it's really, you know, something that we could spend hours reflecting on. And it's something that I've kind of learned from, you know, my mum being a teacher and someone who takes such pride um, like um, you do in kind of being that sort of 
inspiration and kind of a, a gateway for for students to understand more than just kind of their narrative because I think that that's so important in terms of both understanding other people's but also their own narrative it, it sometimes it's just very much like horse with the blinkers on um and and tunnel visioned and I think that was something that I was really thinking about um when I was um, preparing for this interview because obviously I was preparing very recently after the horrible shooting in Colorado Springs and I think one thing that really stood out was the reaction of the father that went viral on social media and just the complete sheer disregard of his son's actions in instead focusing on you know worrying about why he'd stepped foot in an lgbtq plus venue um yeah it's really shocking yeah and i i think it's it's horrible it it disgusted me but we, we, I think we have to recognize that there are going to be some of those situations where such a, a dangerous narrative is perpetuated within the family environment. So, you know, as a teacher, as someone who has spent, you know, decades working to be a role model, to inspire kids, what what can we do in those other settings? Um, aside from the family environment, which often we, we don't have that control over, what can we do to kind of steer them towards a more positive course because it is clear that that man had many many um things that will have affected his his decision to do that um but i think it is important to reflect on you know preventing that um kind of mindset to carry on in in general society i suppose we'll always have some individuals with that mindset um, we need to create a social order in which those who have that mindset, uh, if they choose not to be educated out of the mindset, okay, they keep it, but they don't have a place in the public square with a megaphone, at least. And right now, one of the things I'm primarily worried about is that there are a lot of people with megaphones who aren't prepared for that position. The former president of the United States is like the supreme example. God, how we gave him such power. Um, so we need to learn, well, I started to say, we need to learn to ignore those ones who hold to these views, but that also can get you in deep trouble because they can get out of hand. They can acquire more followers and more power. So ultimately, I guess it comes down just to individual persons who live their lives openly and freely and with as much kindness and love as possible and understanding and hoping for the well-being of everyone else. And I think that's probably the way forward. And maybe this man, and I think this shooter's mother's father also is a right-wing politician, big Trump supporter, you know, wears like, you know, 
flags and guns and such to prove that he'd be a good politician. Isn't that the case that this, have you heard about that? that this, yeah, I, I believe I've read the same thing. Yeah, so, you know, you've got a whole family there, a whole family dynamic that is not conducive to uh, warm behavior. And in fact, created this monstrous 22 year old, I think he's 22. Um, so all we can do is in our personal lives and our professional lives and our family lives, continuing to talk, not silencing ourselves, continuing to move the conversation forward, trying to do it civilly, though sometimes that's really hard. I mean, I've had to, you know, I've had to chop off some family members, some friends from high school, for example, from my social media, because we live in two different worlds and we're never going to understand each other. I hope they live long, happy, healthy lives, but I don't want their toxicity in, in my system. They probably feel mine is toxicity and they don't want mine in their system. So it's an impasse that many of us are in, in many places, and I'm speaking to the US uh, example, but we keep saying what we need to say, we keep doing what we need to do, we keep advancing the conversation as much as we can, we don't go back into any closets, not even for a moment, we stay out, we stay public, we advocate for our views, and I think over time, uh, you know, Martin Luther King said the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. He was quoting someone else, but you know, he gets the credit for it as the one who really put that idea out there. And I think he's right. Even when I'm without hope on occasion, like when I woke up, well, I didn't go to bed. Early morning, November of 2016, when I recognized, well, dear God, this guy's going to be the president. Even when I'm without hope, um, I think it's still good to try to find a reservoir of hope somewhere. Mm. Uh, because if we just go hopeless and withdraw, then that side which doesn't believe in embracing all humanity will win. Yeah. So we have to stay out there. Yeah, absolutely. And History Month is part of that because once a year in February in the UK, in October in the USA, in Australia, wherever, once a year, we intentionally take these individuals and events and this history and we put it on the top shelf and we put a little spotlight on it, you know, with intention once a year. That's part of how we make the world a better place. That's how African-Americans have done it in the USA with Black History Month. That's how LGBTQ plus Americans or uh, LGBTQ plus people are going to be doing it all over uh, the globe. I hope Absolutely. more and more in future years yeah. and young people like you who are extraordinary and already have so many things figured out that it took the rest of us till we were 30 or 35 to figure out that's the future too. So your, your generation, yeah, your generation has some problems, but all generations do, right? Largely your generation is forward thinking and you're going to take us into a much better, a much better place. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there's just the one final thought from yourself for today um, would be, obviously, we've just been discussing there some of the 
the challenges, the distressing things that our, our community faces. But if you had to give one piece of advice um, to people that read this interview, listen to some of the recording, um, and are kind of struggling to kind of give themselves that reassurance and consolidarity within the community, I guess. Um, what is the sort of one thing that resonates with you that gives you that peace, that hope, that optimism in, in times like this? Accept who you are and accept who others are, find areas of commonality, find places of mutual understanding, uh, discover areas of compatibility, keep the door to the tent open, make room under the umbrella for everyone who wants to be under that umbrella. Unity does bring about strength. And in this case, for our community, we're talking about unity of purpose, the full and total liberation of all human beings without regard to sexual orientation, gender identity and expression and where we might find ourselves. Absolute liberation and the right to live a whole and peaceful and safe and productive life achieving one's full potential and wanting that for everyone else. Mm. That'd be it. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Rodney. I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and really privileged to have been able to speak to you today. It's been an absolute pleasure.